humans, hello humans of the world. It's me, Ellie Krug, on Ellie 2.0 Radio on AM 950 in lovely Eden Prairie, Minnesota. How are you? I mean, like, really, how are you today? Because here in Minnesota, on Saturday, it is like summer, not even spring. And, um, you know, if you look at the next 10 days coming up, it ain't looking bad. (laughs) So I am absolutely thrilled about that. But more than that, I am thrilled to be back to you again on another Saturday and Sunday when we do the replay. I'm talking about idealism and idealists. You know, I am your resident idealist um, and about trying to change the world because it's pretty darn important, isn't it? We've got a good show. No, great show. Ellie, come on. We have a great show. Um, The big interview is with a woman named Fazia Khan, who is um, an obstetrician turned artist. (laughs) Yep. Now that's interesting right there. Who, who is um, opening an exhibit at the Hopkins Art Museum, uh, excuse me, the Hopkins Art Center in, um, in May. And it's an exhibit about women. And uh, so stay tuned. You're going to like that interview. Oh, by the way, I happen to be a part of that exhibit, but it, yeah, I'd have her on even if I wasn't a part of it. And then you'll get my C block at the end of this. Um, but let's begin, as I always do, with a featured idealist. And this is someone you know, someone, it's a name that you're, many of you are very familiar with, particularly if you watch CNN uh, frequently, like I do. I am speaking about um, Van Jones. Although, as it turns out, Van is not his name. His name is actually Anthony Capel Jones, and he adopted the, the nickname of Van when he was um, a late teenager. So, but he goes by Van now for everything. And he has a fascinating story, so fascinating um, as an idealist that I, there's no way I can capture it um, in just a single segment. Maybe someday I'll come back and finish it. But let me give you, because you know, I like to, you know, you have the public persona, you see Van Jones, but I always like to go behind the scenes and tell you, you know, like, how did he get there? So the story actually begins um, in 1968 when Van Jones was born, September of 68, and he was born in a town uh, named Jackson, Tennessee. His mother was a high school teacher. His father was a middle school principal, so he had that education kind of bedrock um, right out of the blocks. But his his grandfather was um, uh, a minister in the Methodist Episcopal Church, um, and and um, and and the grandfather would take Van Jones uh, to conferences, like you know, church-related, religious-related conferences. So, growing up, Van Jones had this kind of education, religious type of background, and very sounded like a very solid background. But he described himself as kind of a bizarre, geeky kid. That's, I mean, that's how Van Jones. Uh, described himself. But you know, it's interesting as I read about him, I learned that he and I have something in common. So Van Jones, like Ellie Krug, um, his heroes were the special K's, uh, Dr. King, Bobby Kennedy, and added John Kennedy. In fact, on his bulletin board in his bedroom, he had a special Kennedy section. 
uh, to remind him about idealists and idealism. I love that. He went to college. I mean, graduated from high school in Jackson, Tennessee, and went to college at the University of Tennessee. Um, and then in, uh, UT Martin um, must be Martin, Tennessee. And then, um, and while while and while he was in college, he tried his stint at journalism. So he interned at a couple of newspapers, and then for the Associated Press. I mean. Pretty great stats. His study of of school in in college was political science and communication. And boy, he was well on his way to getting a really great bend as a journalist. And then he decided not to do that. He decided instead to go to law school. Um, Again, another something in common with Ellie Krug. Okay, and I'll stop with the commonalities right there because I am not a Van Jones by any stretch. Um, but he went to law school and he got lucky. He went to Yale, and you, we know in America right now, if you go to, if you go to one of two schools, particularly Yale or Harvard, I mean, and there are other Ivy League schools, but if you go to one of those two, that's a ticket. He went to he went to Yale Law School, and so you have this black kid um, uh, from Tennessee in New Haven, Connecticut, for the very first time. And he's out in – he's in law school and then something happened. Remember the Rodney King beating and then the Rodney King trial and then you remember the riots and then you remember massive protests after that. Um, you know – and by the way, you know, that's like 1992 and guess what, everyone? Guess what? That pattern has continued <laughs> up to today. Um, thankfully, we broke it uh, the week before last um, with the Derek Chauvin trial. We broke the pattern at least once. We did. But at any rate, the Rodney King um, protests begin and, and, and Van Jones is in law school at Yale and there's a group of lawyers uh, about human rights who draft him and a couple of other law students uh, to go to San Francisco to monitor uh, the protests. You know, so you've got law students monitoring how the protests are going to, to avoid any police um, brutality and things like that. And wouldn't you know it, while he's at the protest, Van Jones gets arrested along with some other law students. Ultimately, the district attorney dropped those charges. But that, that thing about being arrested, according to Van Jones himself, it radicalized him. And he, he goes back to Yale Law School after that and he starts doing something that all idealists do, he started looking around. He started to open his eyes and he realized, you know, that his law school classmates, white law school classmates, white color, were, um, you know, using all kinds of drugs, you know, no consequences for them. At worst, it was rehabilitation. But the projects, the, the black kids in the projects, you know, three blocks from, you know, Yale Law School, doing the same drugs, even smaller quantities, and they were going to jail. And this registered with him in a big way. And he started to better understand how the system is rigged against people who are not white. So he gets out of law school. He ends up going uh, to San, back to San Francisco, and he ends up um, – uh, creating when he's in San Francisco, he's just, a, you know, he's barely out of law school and he goes back and he goes to San Francisco and he creates uh, uh, this 
program, uh, which is pretty radical for its time in the mid-90s, about tracking down uh, police officers with histories of violence. It was called the Bay, Bay Area Police Watch. And what what he and his colleagues were doing was they were collecting data on the complaints against police officers and problematic precincts and accumulating that data and using it then um, to to go after the police officers that were most problematic. In fact, they started going after a particular white police officer who had beaten an unarmed black man to death. Um, from there, he then created he, – he went on to create the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights, um, which was – in California, there was Proposition 21 going on, which was to elevate the crime, you know, the penalties, the sentences um, for various crimes. In other words, put more people in prison. And he campaigned against that unsuccessfully. The Ella Baker Center uh, – non- so he's created a nonprofit in his late 20s. The Ella, Ella Baker Center goes on then to do work to reform the criminal justice system in uh, California. Eventually, Van Jones, you know, Katrina occurred. He got involved in New Orleans about doing some relief work. And eventually he starts to focus on the environment. And what Van Jones, now remember, keeps his eyes open. He's a man who uses imagination. And what he does then is he starts to advocate um, for uh, green green jobs that could lift up people from um, – uh, marginalized communities to give them jobs while at the same time helping to make the environment more green. It it was – and this is – and Van Jones was before the Green New Deal and he was so much um, a proponent of this that uh, what he called the green collar economy, so much so that he became a special advisor to President Obama in March of 2009 um, to help about this green jobs. And at that point, Van Jones came to understand what happens in politics because as soon as Van Jones was in uh, the White House, right-wing media started mining past statements that Van Jones had made because he got – remember, he got pretty radical after getting arrested and then seeing the disparities. And, and Van Jones didn't last six months at the White House before um, he resigned because of the firestorm brought by the right. Uh, from there, of course, Van Jones went on to become a commentator for CNN. He went on to do a number of other things. Um, and then um, he also uh, helped do this thing called Yes, We Code, which was about giving uh, 100,000 kids from marginalized communities um, jobs coding. And this is where the Minnesota connection comes in because it turns out that Van Jones was a confidant to Prince, our lovely Prince. And one of the invisible founders of this yes, hashtag yes we code program was Prince. But only Van Jones knew that because you remember a Prince was a Seventh-day Adventist, or excuse me, a Jeho- Jehovah's Witness and Prince did not ever want to be given recognition for his charitable deeds. And so it was only after Prince died that Van Jones told folks about what Prince did. So 
Um, I, I'm out of time, as it turns out. But Van Jones, okay? When you see him on CNN, will you do me this favor? Tell it, tell yourself, oh, there's an idealist. And Van Jones, hmm, he's got more to come. I have no doubt about it. I really, he's one of my favorite commentators. I love the man. I really do. Okay, well, that's it for the A Block where we talk about idealists. We're going to come back. We're going to give you the big interview with Fazia Khan. And then you'll get my C Block. I mean, I hope you enjoy these shows because I spend time on them. And um, I care about you. I do. So we'll be back in a second with the big interview. Bye. And we're back. LA 2.0 Radio on AM 950. Van Jones, you know, um, next time you hear him or see him on TV, uh, now you know a little bit more about him. Okay. And as I said, we'll hear far more from that gentleman before um, it's all over. Okay. Now for the big interview. I am thrilled with a capital T to be able to introduce you to Fazia Khan, who is both um, a a medical doctor by training, but also an incredible artist um, whom I had the pleasure of working with for um, an upcoming uh, exhibition she is going to have at the Hopkins Art Center. Fazia, are you on the line? I am. Hey, Fazia, welcome to LE 2.0 Radio. I am thrilled to have you here. Um, can, uh, can you, first of all, tell us uh, tell us about the installation that will be at uh, the Hopkins Art uh, Center. Tell us a little bit about what it's about, and then I want to talk about your background because it's fascinating. So go ahead. Okay. Um, So I was very lucky to get an artist initiative grant from the Minnesota State Arts Board for the year 2020. And I was thrilled to have it, and then the pandemic happened. (laughs) Um, but But the project itself, I have made work about um gender roles um, and women and the invisibility of what they do. And I wanted to do something that um, that addressed that. And so my idea was that I would go out and interview women from around the state and create an installation that highlighted them. So I have um, 12 dish towels, flower sack dish towels, that are machine embroidered with the eyes of the women who I interviewed. I have created a synopsis or a bio on each woman that tells you a little bit about who they are and what they have done. And then I put together individual videos for each of the 12 women um, that were edited down from, from, from my interview um, and then created a composite video that will be playing while these are on display. Okay, so Fazia, let's, uh, can I interrupt you? Because we should probably let everybody know right off the bat, I'm part of this installation. I'm one of the women that you interviewed, right? Correct. Okay. And, um, and what, uh, the title of the installation is what? 
It's called Becoming Invisible. Okay. And it will and it, and let's just get down the technical and we'll come back to that before we end as okay. well. It's going to be at the Hopkins um, Art Center, is that right? Correct. It opens May 13th. There will be an opening reception from 6 to 8 p.m. Um, and then there is an artist talk with me on May 20th, um, again from 6 to 8 p.m. And the show ends on June 19th. Okay. And you've already had the, you've already had the installation at, um, was it the Pillsbury Center the, in Minneapolis? At the Phipps uh, Art Center in Hudson, Wisconsin. Oh, there you I go. And the first six <laughs> women out there. Yeah. Okay. All right. And I happen to be, I think, one of them, um, right? Yeah. Okay. Right. All right. So we've got that out. Now, now, but Fazia, this is a little bit more than, you know, just women's eyes and, and, um, uh, on on dish towels, okay? It's it's correct because really what we do is we see the eyes. But but tell us more about. I mean, this is supposed to represent the role of women and how they are invisible, right, in the world. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. So, well, my fault. <laughs> um, you know, I grew up in. Uh, I come. I come from Pakistan. Originally, that's where my parents are from. And it's a fairly patriarchal society. And I, I think that actually most societies today are patriarchal to lesser yep. or greater degrees. And um, I, I'm sorry, I have to kind of go into my background a little bit to explain this. Please, that's okay. please do. Please um, do. So, you know, I was a physician. I was an obstetrician gynecologist. And I practiced for three years. Um, until I had my child and decided at that point to stay home. Um, I was completely uh, flabbergasted by the love I felt for this baby hmm. and the desire to stay home to raise my child. So I did that and I went from this, you know, very busy professional people, someone people look up to, right, who ask advice of your doctor who's in charge, who deals with life-to-death situations, to basically being a housewife and a mother. Um, my husband, luckily for me, is also a physician. So, so, And my mom kind of did the same thing. She was a housewife, but she was also a doctor, and but she was home and worked part-time when she had us. And I look at what, what do women do in this world? Um and even though we're breaking glass ceilings now and we have a new, you know, vice president who's a woman, the vast majority of women do a lot of work that is unacknowledged. Um, you know, a lot of the housework in the home is still done by women. Most of the child care is done by women. Dealing with schools is, uh, for their children is done by women. Raising the children and giving them the messages that they're going to carry into their adulthood is done by women, and oftentimes that is in addition to working outside the home. And so I wanted to do a project that showed the breadth of what women actually do and the contributions that they make to society and to their communities um, beyond um, the job title that they may have. The other thing I wanted to do is also show all the different women that live, who call themselves Minnesotans, hmm. 
Hmm. Um, immigrants, new immigrants, people whose families have lived here for generations, um, the diversity of, of Minnesota society today. Okay. And um, we only have about a minute, but uh, but your dish towels are, I mean, they're, they're also a little reflective of your heritage, right? Because um, at least you were raised Muslim, right? And um, and the the dish towels are are um, there's we only you only see the eyes because that is um, reflective of Muslim culture around the burqa and the niqab, right? Niqab, yeah. So even though the Quran does not tell women that they have to cover their faces, uh, there are um, some women in Muslim societies, and it's usually related to culture who cover their faces completely um, or only their eyes visible. And so that that makes a woman invisible in society, right? right. She's just this anonymous person walking down the street. Um, and so that's why I do just the eyes, in a sense, to because that's making them invisible. However, when you walk into the room and you see all these dish towels with all these eyes looking at you, the viewer becomes the viewed. Yeah, I love it. Which makes them visible. Okay. Now, we're going to have to take a break, okay? And when we come back, I want to uh, hear about some of the women um, that you interviewed. But then I want to talk about you. What caused you to, to pursue this and about how you, how you view the world right now, okay? All right, listeners, we're going to take a break. You've been listening to me, Ellie Krug. I've been interviewing um, Fazia Khan um, about her installation coming to the Hopkins Art Center. If you like what you hear, visit my website at elliekrug.com. Email me at elliejkrug at gmail. I love listening to my – hearing from my listeners. We'll be back in a minute. Thanks. We're back, LE 2.0 Radio on AM 950. Uh, we uh, Before we took our break, we were speaking with um, a, a physician and artist, uh, Fazia Khan, about her installation, her exhibit that will be at the Hopkins um, Art uh, uh, Center. Uh, the name of the installation is Becoming Visible, and it's going to run from May 13th until June 19th. And Fazio interviewed women um, located in Minnesota to show the variety, the diversity of the state. And Fazia, before we took our break, um, you started to explain, you know, that you that that all of this is about trying to highlight how women have so many invisible roles. Uh, and you interviewed twelve different women. I happen to be one of them, and I'm really grateful that you would have selected me. But do you want to share about one of the women that, you know, maybe has an, a, a, you know, maybe an even more, you know, compelling story than the rest or for whatever reason, was there someone you'd like to highlight out of the 12 interviews? Well, um, yeah, I hate to say highlight because they're all so different and so amazing, but yeah. I'll tell you about um, one of them. Um and her name is Natalia Stroud. 
church. And it's interesting the way I found her. Um, my church decided to do, they, they have a relationship with um, uh, a mosque in North Minneapolis, Masjid An-Nur. And they wanted to do story court interviews with their members, with um, with members of Masjid An-Nur. And I happened to get paired up with Nataya. And so we did a story court interview over Zoom together. Oh. And I found her story so fascinating <laughs> that I then emailed her and said, would you be part of my project? <laughs> because I think you would be wonderful. But Nataya grew up, she's African-American, she's Muslim. She grew up in North Minneapolis um, She to a single mother. She did have a stepfather who came into her life at age five. And um, she converted to Islam when she was in high school. She married her high school boyfriend in high school and then got pregnant right away with uh, twins. She had to go into the hospital um, for some preterm labor and ended up uh, continuing her work there. She was to school afterwards. So, uh, uh, Fazia, I've got to interrupt you. I'm sorry. You, you're you're fading in and out of uh, the microphone. Okay, and um, yeah. if you can, if you can be more uh, direct on, it would be really great. Okay. So okay. what what I've what we've heard is that Natalia Stroud she was pregnant with twins. She went into the hospital, and then you sort of lost me. Go ahead. Okay. She continued. Uh, she was very dedicated to her schoolwork. And after she had the babies, she went to school for moms. She took um, AP classes, and she graduated early. She went to uh, college right away. She got an associate's degree in nursing. And all this time, she's raising the children. She basically had six children in seven, you know, in seven years. Wow. She was married, was living in public housing for some time. Got a job while working, went back to school to get her bachelor's. Then while working, decided to enroll in a doctorate of nursing program. Um, and while she's doing all of these things, she's volunteering in her community. She is helping other moms. She started a project in her home where people would donate items and she'd sort through them and clean them and have them for people to pick up and use, you know, baby items and, right. and clothing and the like. She started a group like the Girl Scouts for Muslim girls. Oh, love it. Um, because she wanted her kids to have a place and she was on the uh, board of a uh, Sisters Need a Place, which is a domestic violence shelter for women. Um she served on the state board of nursing and she just, she amazed me because, you know, when I think of where she came from and her dedication to, to getting something, a better life for herself and her children. And, you know, her husband worked that whole time as well and was starting his own business. Um, but he had to work really hard. And on the video, she talks about how sometimes, I'm sorry, they Fuzzy, feel like mom and yeah, Fuzzy, you faded out again. I'm so sorry. Um, you, you know what? You say she it might. I'll take off my headphones if that will help. Um, she said that she wasn't sure that her sh children understood. They felt that 
the parents weren't around for them. Mm. And yet the, the parents were trying to make sure that, that, um, they wouldn't have to, you know, stand in line for food stamps, um, uh, or at a food shelf because that's how they grew up. So let me, let me just stop you there. So, I mean, this is a very, very important point. So she and her husband are working their tails off to provide for, mm-hmm. what, seven children? Is that right? Yep. And, of course, in our society right now, I mean, um, well, other than the pandemic, people, a lot of people are home, and so maybe that's a silver lining. But, I mean, the way that our society works is that in order to do that, you have to leave the home and you have to work a lot of hours, sometimes a lot, a lot of hours. And But her children... The messaging the children received were was you know that you weren't here for us, <laughs> right? Right. Okay. Yep. I'm sure as those children get older and have their own children, they will understand. But was she struggling with that? I mean, was that something that that um, hurt her heart? Yes, of course. Yeah. When you hear that from your kids, yep. you know. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. She has six. Children. Okay. But, yeah. So, so that's one story. I think of all the things she did to 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 make life better for people in her community, and she continues to work four days a week as a nurse practitioner and teaches part time at the University of Minnesota. Um, she's an amazing woman. Absolutely. Wow. And. And yet she's a, quote, ordinary woman, like how many people know about her or know that story. Well, you know, and that's an interesting thing. I mean, um, one, you know, my work is around human inclusivity and becoming familiar with humans. And the, the reality is there are, there are so many extraordinary stories out there of people, you know, ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And... Um, and, and some may, might say that about you, Fazia, okay? Because look at you. I mean, you, you went from medical school and, and being a, a doctor, as you said at the start of the interview, to then being a housewife. I'm not necessarily thrilled about that phrase, but that's okay. That was a phrase you used, okay? You know, but now, but you, you're also this artist and you're giving voice to women and... Um, and and that's pretty incredible in and of itself, I would say. So thank you for doing that. Well, thank you. I, I'm much more comfortable highlighting others' accomplishments. Yeah. <laughs> well, so let's. Um, we have a couple minutes left, and so let's just talk about you. And if we're uh, speaking of that, what you know, it's not a given, okay, that you would then kind of pivot away from. Maybe going back to, uh, you know, uh, the practice of medicine after your children were raised. It's not a given that certainly you would be an artist. And certainly it's not a given that you would be an artist and go to a lot of trouble to interview people. Because, I mean, you spent, you know, probably three hours setting up and then talking to me. And I can just imagine with all the other women. What, what is it about you that, that causes you want to want to make the world at least more illuminated, if not changed? Mm. Uh, a couple of things. First, I have a lot of gratitude for my oh. life and gratitude for the parents I had who raised me, who who were wonderful parents, 
uh, gratitude that I never went hungry, um, that I was always close, that I always had a stable home. Um, you know, I lived in Nigeria. I'm from Pakistan. I've seen poverty. And um, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> Well, I'm at, you know uh, I'm asking what you know what got you here that it, because it's not a given that you would do something like this and so what is it about you know that you want to illuminate the world why? Um, my mother, my mother was an amazing woman, and she always wanted to help where mm-hmm. she could, and she was always the person people turned to in the family to help, but she was a pragmatist as well. So I say I'm an idealist, but I'm also a realist Mm -hmm. with a dose of pragmatism. You know, she would say, if you're going to help somebody, don't just hand them something. Help them to help themselves. Mm -hmm. So that parable of, you know, teach a a person to fish versus giving them fish. And so I guess that's really where that comes from for me is watching her example growing up was if you can't make the world a better place, why are you here? I mean, we have this short life. What are we going to do with it? Mm. Mary Oliver. (laughs) Um, (laughs) No, but I mean, but Fazia, you know, I mean, you just, you know, these are the words that I say and, and regularly and, and, but it's true, you know, but, but, and I've got to watch our time here, but Fazia, many people want to make a difference in the world. They want to make it a better place, but they don't have the time because they have all these other obligations. So Natia, you know, Stroud that you just highlighted, she is the exception, you know, that she would go out and do more, notwithstanding all of the time demands on her. And, um, you know, at any rate, um, I think that I mean that I think that's the thing that holds so many people back, and they're afraid, you know, as well. Yeah, and I think some of it is also just who you are genetically. I don't know. I mean, I have a brother; he was raised by the same parents. <laughs> um, he is very compassionate and tender-hearted, but he—I don't know that you would call him an idealist. Right. Right. Well, listen, Fazia, we've got to unfortunately break off, but let's just make sure for the audience again that they, they, uh, your your installation, your exhibit is called Be- Becoming Visible. It's going to be at the Hopkins Art Center. Give us the dates again and when you're going to speak there. The dates are May 13th through June 19th with an opening reception May 13th from 6 to 8 p.m. And then my talk is on May 20th, which is a Thursday from 6 to 8 7 or 7 to 8 p.m., yet to be decided. Um, if anyone would like to attend those events, there is limited um, capacity because of COVID, so you would need to uh, contact the Art Center, go on their website to request um, 
an invitation or okay. a ticket, however. And there, are, and there are other artists that are also <laughs> going to be there at Hopkins at the time. And unfortunately, we don't have the time to, for you to name them all. But you wanted to make sure that people understood there are other other shows going on, other installations at the same time as yours is. And you want to make sure that folks understand that it's going to be a multi kind of faceted um, experience to go to the Hopkins Art Center, right? Absolutely. Okay. All right. Well, listen, Fazia, we've got to go, unfortunately, but I really have enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for giving me your time. Um, listeners, we've been speaking with Fazia Khan. Uh, her exhibit, uh, Becoming Visible, is going to be at the Hopkins Art, Art Center uh, beginning on May 13th. All right. When we come back from our break, um, you're going to get my C-block talking about my work and a day that I had on Thursday. Boy, let me tell you, we'll be back in a second. Thanks. And we're back. AM 950, LE 2.0 Radio, Ellie Krug here. Hi. Um, Fazia Khan, hey, go out to Hopkins if you can. See your exhibit. I think that it it's great. I mean, yes, I'm in it. I happen to be in it, but I'd be telling you that anyway. Okay, we're in my C block right now, and I just want to talk to you about <laughs> Thursday of this week. I did four separate talks for four separate groups between 11 a.m. and 5 o'clock that day. A um, couple of takeaways from that. Uh, one, um, I'm too old <laughs> to be doing four talks in one day. So uh, that that won't happen again. I'm pretty <laughs> sure that I will tell you that. Secondly, um, three of the talks were to lawyers, and uh, two of those were about allyship, about how to be active, um, you know, for people who are from marginalized communities, how to actively support them. Allies, a status, allyship is action. Uh, One of those talks was about about how difficult it is to um, talk about skin color. And then another talk I gave to the Y um, in one of the burbs. I'm sorry. Maybe it's, I'm not, I'm not remembering which Y, but it was a really nice group of people. I talked about human and compassion and, and inclusivity. Um, so here's what um, I can tell you from all of that experience. One, uh, a lot of people paid attention to the Chopin verdict. It did. That's really no surprise. But I mean one of the talks was to a bunch of people, a lot, a lot of lawyers in Illinois, not here in, in Minnesota – um, but they all, you know, they paid attention to the Chauvin verdict. And what I consistently heard from people was that, the, you know, the trial and the verdict reinvigorated them about wanting to make change in America. And boy, that was a really great thing to see and hear as I interacted with my audiences. The problem, however, is, you know, we humans have a short attention span. We do. No matter how much... We would want to make sure our attention stays on point. It, it doesn't. I mean, just think of you've been listening to the show now for 45, close to 50 minutes, maybe a little bit more than that at this point. 
And I uh, think of how many times you've done other things or thought of other things in the time that I've been speaking. Of course, that may just point to the fact that I'm relatively boring, although my guests are never. Um, but, you know, yes, I made a joke there. I hope that made you laugh or smile. And But my question to my audiences yesterday was, um, what's it going to take to keep it from falling off the plate because of our, our, our low attention spans, our short attention spans? spans. And I, I'm going to ask that to you, my listener. I know that many of you are socially conscious. That's why you listen to this station. I know many of you are like extra socially conscious because that's why you listen to this show. And for you, maybe it will stay on the plate a lot longer. And when I say what it is, it is about change. It's about working. It's about actively pushing to make um, things better to change the landscape, move the needle, however you want to describe it, to make America more equitable. Okay. I mean, you know, we had President Joe this week talking about things about how we can be better to all humans. But for us individually, what, you know, what are you doing to make sure it stays on the plate and doesn't fall off? I mean, for me, uh, not that I'm anybody special, but I can safely say it, it never falls off the plate because this is the only work that I'm doing. I'm this is my retirement, actually, and this is my retirement. I This is my work, social justice, making the world a better place. But for those of you with the 10-hour, you know, work days like Fazia just talked about, you know, you know, the moms or the dads are all, you know, both of you are out of the house. You're just struggling. You're trying to make time for your kids uh, in, in between trying to provide for them. What's it going to take for you to make sure that changing things, making things right, equalizing a totally rigged system, what's it going to take for you to keep it on your plate? So I, you know, I think that we all need to bear that in mind. And we need to be conscious of, of the fact of how things fade away because you remember uh, Governor Walls said last year right after um, the unrest, we only have one more chance to fix it. I And you've heard me say this before. I agree with that 100 percent. It falls off the plate. We're going to lose the chance. Just saying. Okay. Well, um, listen, I hope that you enjoy this show. I hope you tell other people about it. I would really appreciate that. I would, you know, greatly appreciate you sharing, you know, about me, Ellie Krug. You know, um, if you have an organization you'd like me to come and speak at, reach out to me at elliekrug.com. Um, you know, you can reach me at elliejkrug at gmail.com. I would love to come and speak to your organization, if it's a church or a nonprofit. You know, and if you have a short budget, uh, we'll talk about that. Okay, we'll make it work. All right, you've been listening to me. That's another show in. There we go. Big thanks to my producer, Patrick, who I keep making do math. And a big thanks to all of you. I look forward to seeing you next week or talking to you next week at least. And in the meantime, go out, keep it on the plate, and work to make things better. Will you do that, please? All right, take care. See you next week. Bye.